Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 58 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union better known by everyone by now as DCU. And whether you're driving off the lot or refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. You can learn more at dcu.org auto. Insured by the NCUA, membership required. Yep, you heard me. Rates as low as 1.49% APR. Just log on to dcu.org slash auto. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. If you have ever wanted to check jump out of a plane off of your bucket list, why not go to America's oldest skydiving drop zone? It's really easy to get to right off of Route 2 in Orange, Massachusetts. Jumptown Skydiving is open seven days a week. And if you work in the service industry, Jumptown understands that you can't get time off on the weekends because that's when you make your money. That's why they offer service industry discounts. Tandems as low as $189 on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And if you want to put a big group from work together, for every person you bring in, you get $10 off your tandem. If you bring in 10 people, you jump for free. Imagine falling at 120 miles an hour from 13,500 feet up. Log on to jumptown.com for more details or call 978-544-5321 to book your tandem skydive at Jumptown. Okay, this week, my guest on the podcast is a rock and roll icon and legend. He and his brother make up half of the Stone Temple Pilots. And STP is getting ready to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican gift shop. They've remastered the album and are reissuing it in a bunch of different editions. You can get it on CD. You can get the Tiny Music Deluxe set, which comes on two discs, including the remastered version of the 1996 album and unreleased tracks that are exclusive to the STP web store. Or you can get the Super Deluxe Edition that includes the expanded CD, the remastered CD, and the Big Bang Baby 7-inch vinyl as a bonus. Plus, there's a whole line of exclusive merchandise coming out to celebrate the anniversary of this amazing album. 
So I sat down with guitar player Dean DeLeo to find out how he's doing after riding out the lockdown to talk about his musical influences, the early years of playing guitar with his brother. We talked parenting, sports, and his experiences on stage with Scott Weiland and Chester Bennington. Dean has always been an unbelievably gracious guy who is so talented and so humble. And I was so excited when he said that he would do the podcast. If you want more details on the Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican gift shop reissue, you can check the links in the show notes of this podcast. Allow me to introduce you to Dean DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hello, Mr. DeLeo. Hi, Carrie. Boy, it's been a long time. I know. The last time I saw you, I think we had you in a luxury box at Fenway, and we had to drag you out of there to go play a rock show because you wanted to stay and watch the game. <laughs> you know what? That was the first time I was ever at a professional game of sorts. And that was the, first of all, thank you again so much. It was so kind uh, to you have us out like that. And uh, God, it was a, that was a really a blast. Thank you so much. Wait, that's the first time you ever went to a professional baseball game? A professional game of any sort, any sport. Even growing up, you never went to any game anywhere ever? No, I never did. I never did. I was always going to like, concerts or yeah just never never attended any sports things i mean you grew up in jersey so my assumption was that you grew up exposed to those dirty disgusting new york teams and so i thought (laughs) (laughs) i thought maybe you would have grown up going to games i guess not no i I didn't i I tell you what what i used to go go do when i was really young I'm, i'm kind of a giant fan the New York Giants uh, football team. Yeah, we're and, not going to um, talk about I them would... up here, Mr. DeLeo. Okay, <laughs> I got you. I got you. I uh, I would um, go to Mama's College where they where they would have practice and I would watch them practice, which is kind of cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm glad that we brought you to your first game. That's cool. I appreciate it. It was a really, really lovely, lovely afternoon, and yeah, I, I remember that now. Not really wanting to leave. I mean, Robert was really, really into it. Too, and I, oh, man, I wish we could just stay and 
hang out here. That was really nice. I know, but we have to go play this big rock show across the street. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> and that show that night, I remember in particularly uh, that show was really a, a nice show as well. Yeah, that, with the House of Blues right close by with Chester. Yeah, exactly. He, that was when yeah. he had pink hair. He was in the Chester Bennington pink hair era yeah. of his life. Yeah. I remember that being a really, really nice show. You guys did something really cool that you invited fans not only to come in and watch you guys sound check, but what I thought was really cool is that the fans were allowed on the stage. And you guys, you know, were, like, playing. And I remember, you know, fans, like, nerding out because they got to see, like, your fingers up close playing the songs. Because (laughs) even when you go to a concert, you don't get up that close. Well, that sure is a a treat that we love, love doing. And, um, you know, we hope it just brings such great joy for somebody to experience something like that. And, you know, I know I would have if I was able to get on stage with the you know, some of the people I was seeing when I was coming up. But uh, we, we know what a thrill it is for him. And believe me, we just, we love doing it. The difficulty over the last year and a half, I mean, obviously the list of things that have been made difficult is very long. But for the rock community, we've lost our ability temporarily to kind of get together at those shows, which is like, I attribute it to like the land of misfit toys, you know, where it's like the one place where we all go and we all feel normal. And what has that been like for you? I mean, you're a career musician. You've been playing for decades. What has it been like for you to be separated from your fans like that? Well, I never really thought of it on those terms. I just thought of it in, in, uh, I just felt badly for everyone who was affected. You know, I didn't really think on a, on a, on a, on a basis like that. I was just so upset for so many people that were like, you know, losing, um, you know, losing their jobs and, and, and the ramifications that kind of come along with that. I was like, there was a lot of suffering going on, you know, and that's what was really bringing me down about it. Um, But also there's isolation too, which is kind of what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, we're, we're tribal creatures and the rock community is this tribe where we, you know, it's such a cathartic experience for us all to get together Mm -hmm. and go to shows and for us to be forced in order to contribute to society. The best thing we could do was to stay away from everybody. That's been hard. It's very hard. It was very, very hard. It's, uh, yeah, it was, uh, God, it was just, I, I can't even explain it really. It was just a devastating year, year and a half. And uh, as I said, you know, I never really thought of it on a, on the, on a basis of the band. I just thought of it on a more personal level. And I was just like, just really, really sad. That was, uh, you know, people were, there was people suffering. You know, there's a lot of people that were losing some, a lot of things, whether it was, uh, you know, their homes or loved ones or whatever, but it was just, it was just, just a weird year. I'm I'm glad we're, you know, starting to come out of it and kind of, uh, somewhat getting back to normal, I suppose. Where did you ride it all out? You know, I mean, (laughs) I played a lot of music. I uh, made a record with a dear friend of mine, some friends out of Nashville. Uh, we did it did it remotely, actually. So we made this 
really wonderful record that was um pretty nice and um you know it's been i got to spend a lot of time with my kids you know were you east coast or west coast i was here in the west coast it is interesting to have a nomadic job and then to be forced to be home that had to have been adjustment not only for you but also for the kids to have you around so much well, it was just such a drastic change for them, even with school, you know, here they were, um, you know, even, you know, getting an education, if you want to call it that remotely. So it was like just such a massive change on every level. And then when we really had to isolate and we really, you know, when we were all quarantining and just sitting in our homes for months on end. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kooky. Are you saying you weren't a good math tutor? <laughs> I guess, yeah, I need to, I, I, I surely, you know what, I, I surely know where I fall short. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> a teacher, I am not. When I was looking at this stuff, I was looking at this stuff, my, my daughter's in third grade, for goodness sake, I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't know that I rightly know the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> it's very humbling for an adult to all of a sudden get brought back down to your level with your kid's homework. Oh, man. Well, one of the things that you you get to do is you get to be locked down with your guitar. The guitar world said that at the height of the pandemic, a thousand guitars a day were getting sold, which is an amazing really? statistic. Yeah. So there's That's a incredible. there's a lot of new guitar players out there now. What advice would you give people that just picked it up for the first time during the lockdown? Oh, just allow it to become your best pal, your best mate, your best friend. Just, just establish this beautiful, loving relationship with it. Do you still have the first guitar you ever got? Um, yeah, um, the first nice guitar I ever got um, was an acoustic guitar that my mom uh, bought for me when I was about 16. And I used it on, I would say, most of the records. And uh, I gave it to my son on his 16th birthday. Did you really? Yeah, and I said, "Listen, listen, man. When you when you're you know when when your old man's dead and gone, and you're in your car and you're with your kids, and Creep comes on the radio, or Interstate Love Song, or uh, any of this, any of these songs, like just you know, that was that was the guitar that I got when I was 16, and that's that's the guitar that that you have now, and you can pass down to your kids. So it's kind of cool. That's really cool." When you when yeah. you got that guitar, were you taking lessons? I, I ask this because I, I've been fortunate to have a lot of really amazing conversations with artists over the years. And one thing I'm fascinated by is how many musicians learn by ear and picked it up naturally with no lessons and without reading music. Are you one of those people? Well, I can't read music. I, I don't know how to read music. And I kind of know some of the chords I'm playing, but... I really expressed to my mom when I was younger that I wanted to take lessons and um, her, one of her best friends, her son was a folk player. Um, he played acoustic and he was really into like kind of the folk scene around the early seventies. And, and uh, I took two lessons with him. And on the third lesson, I was just more concerned without having fun with my friends. And I very rudely did not show up to my lesson. <laughs> and my mom said, uh, my mom said, honey, you can't do that. Well, I did it again next week. She said, well, that's it. I'm not going to have any more lessons. I'm not going to waste the other time. So, but I, I did have two lessons in my life and that was it. 
And I learned, uh, I'm going to tell you what I learned how to play in those two lessons. I learned two songs. I learned the great Roger Miller's uh, King of the Road. Trailers for sale or rent. Rooms to rent if you sense, right? <laughs> I learned that. I learned that song, and I learned Everybody's Talking At Me by uh, Milton. Really? That's what you learned <laughs> yeah, in your lessons? That's what I learned in my lessons, and I was like, "Man, I want to, I want to play, I want to play like side one of Kiss Alive, man." <laughs> this is so uncool. <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'll tell you, it was uncool. Really uncool is when my mom, she, my mom loved entertaining, and, and she had so many friends. Whenever her friends would come over, it just never, never fails. My mom would go, "Hun." Now, hon, go, go get your guitar and play and sing for us. I'd be like, oh, jeez. And I only do two songs. <laughs> <laughs> so here's me in the living room. Trailers for sale. This sucks. <laughs> One thing that, anyway. that we all kind of have in common as, as music lovers is... The first music we get exposed to usually comes from our parents or older siblings. And then there's a line in the sand where we discover our own music and kind of take ownership of music for our own generation. Who taught you? Was it your mom, that love of music? Where did you get it from originally? Yeah, you know, I had the luxury of having older brothers and sisters and my mom. So I was getting, I was getting this whole incredible world of pop from my mom like my mom listening to you know of course she she really dug the carpenters so i had a lot of carpenters playing like you know andy williams glenn campbell uh dean martin you know astro gilberto and all that bossa nova stuff and then like my brother would be like cranking you know i I remember hearing Hendrix coming cranking out of his room in like 1969 when i was like eight years old being like what is that (laughs) <laughs> like what the heck is that? Like you didn't believe what you know I was hearing, and then of course my sisters would be playing stuff like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, or Cat Stevens and James Taylor. So I really got, you know, Robert and I were 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 really exposed to like a lot of different types of music, and it was God, it was just it was just you know there was music coming in, three different types of music coming out of out of different rooms in the house at one time. What music do you remember you saying, okay, this is mine? Like, I'm not learning this from my older siblings or mom. This, this is my music. Do you remember who it was? Was it Kiss? No, no. Um, i tell you, I really, I really loved, um, you got to think, you know, when I was a kid, you know, coming up in the 1970s, I was born in 1961, so... I'm coming up in the 1970s and you know, you could put on AM radio and in the early seventies, you could hear Neil singing heart of gold, Elton singing goodbye yellow brick road. I mean, that, that was on AM radio. You think of the, the quality of the music that was being played over the radio in the seventies. So like, I was just mad about that stuff, like completely mad about it and just loved it. And then of course, I think the first record that I really, really got knocked over the head with was my sister came home with uh, Sticky Fingers. And I just really, you know, I just put that record on, put that record on, just 
couldn't believe what I was hearing throughout the speakers. You know, the, the young stones, Sticky Fingers, the great Nick Taylor. And then, um, you know, and then it just kind of got harder and I got introduced into more things, you know, and it got really guitar driven into like the more of a Sabbath and Zeppelin and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was a good time to be growing up in music. The 70s, it's like, I mean, <sighs> come on. The best. Were you writing songs then, too, as you were kind of moving along with this cool acoustic guitar your mom gave you? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was kind of writing some some music back then. I, I didn't really have the ability uh, to learn. Learn people's music, like when when I get invited to do these gigs and play with like uh, Billy Idol or Billy Gibbons or the cult or whatever if i get invited you know i i have to resort to youtube i'll go on youtube and see how they're playing i'll be like oh great because i don't have that ability to just listen to it and be like oh that's the score that chord it, it it doesn't come very easily to me so i just started writing my own music like uh you know like big empty and a lot of the stuff off the first and second record i i wrote when i was like 16 years old did you really yeah i wrote i wrote big empty when i was very young and um uh couple other songs too that were uh in this band i was in and i kind of like reworked them you know many 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 years later i kind of reworked them but uh yeah they were kind of um i'm gonna hatched back in uh yeah mid 70s i'm fascinated by people that have innate music ability because i have zero like i was in the marching band and played clarinet and and barely. That's the extent. Oh my gosh, that is a tough instrument. Yeah, tell me about it. I sucked. That's why I stopped my musical career because it was terrible. But yeah, but it was a clarinet. So wait, let me ask you a clarinet. That that is that an open reed on that instrument, or, is, or there, it's like a, a mouthpiece and there's a reed inside. It's a mouthpiece with one reed up against the bottom. The oboe has two. It has yeah. a mouthpiece like a sax. Yeah. Right. The oboe is an open reed kind of thing. Yeah. That's two little yeah, reeds that you've got to vibrate together. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. And as a rock fan, I chose poorly. There's not a lot of like hard rock and heavy metal clarinet music. I was listening to uh, Tom Petty radio. And of course, it was pre-recorded, as you know. And Tom, I couldn't believe he said this. He goes, yeah, so there's a frog and a trombone player walking down the street. You know what the difference between the two are? And I'm like, oh, boy. And he goes, the frog was going to a gig. <laughs> <laughs> that is brutal, but so true. <laughs> so true. Frog and a trombone player. Mine was out of pure laziness because I wanted a small case. I just thought carrying a giant case around was ridiculous. I almost opted for the flute, but I thought the clarinet was cooler. Well, yeah, I mean, I, both are amazing instruments. I mean, I love, I love each, but they sure are hard to play. Yeah, and I was not good at it. So that's where my musical career ended. So for somebody like you... You're you're not classically trained and you're not reading music, but you're saying you don't have the ear to be able to kind of replicate what other people are doing. So I'm curious, get a little nerdy with me. What is it? Can you describe what you hear when you come up with a riff or a song idea? Like, 
How does, th- how does your brain process that? Because you're not writing the notes on paper and you're not kind of taking over something that you're hearing. So how does it work? You know, sometimes I'm not really hearing it at first, but sometimes most of the time it's, I'm sitting down and playing and, um, you know, sometimes I'm not very effective whatsoever. And sometimes, um, I just sit down and play and I stumble upon something more or less because I don't have this great knowledge of like all these, all these chords. I just kind of stumble upon it and kind of just move my hands around and kind of try different things. And once I stumble upon something, then I start to hear what I want the next chord to be. And then the chord after, and I start building from there. So it's, it's almost like, like happy accidents almost. I, I've never heard anybody kind of describe it that way. But those are, yeah, those I are just, some impressive accidents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I've been rather, rather, rather inspired lately. Uh, uh, so, you know, when you have that kind of sensibility and that feeling of, of inspiration, and, you know, it's, it's pretty nice to be able to sit down and just stuff kind of just happens. And I never really sit down to try to write something. I just never, I never do. I don't have that in me. But sometimes lately I've just been sitting down and like just stuff happens. And it's like that, that kind of happy accident. My, my, my hands just go into this place. It's almost like uh, I'm being like just guided. Like they go to this place. I'm like, oh, I like that. That's a nice thing. And I go to the next chord. I'm going to know what I want to hear. And I start building it from there. And then it kind of turns into this thing. I recently interviewed Wadi Wachtel from the immediate family. And I mean, the guy's a legend. And he told me this amazing story about like being in a cab with Keith Richards and Jumpin' Jack Flash came on. And Keith Richards was second guessing the baseline in Jumpin' Jack Flash and being like, wow, I really dropped the ball with that. Like I should have done this and I should have done something else. And, uh-huh. and Wadi like yelled at him and was like, no, you're, it's the one time in your life you're wrong. It's perfect. No. With all of the times that Stone Temple Pilots has gone back, because you got this reissue of Tiny Music coming out on the 23rd, um, with with all of the time you've spent going back over the original tracks and getting ready for remastering and reissuing these iconic albums, have you ever second-guessed decisions on some of your most iconic songs and been like, oh, I should have done something different? No, no, I never really get caught up in that. I, I... I surely do take them from what they are. We we put a a lot of thought into them, and and um, you know, look, we're our we are our own worst critics, and we're really uh, well. I don't want to say hard on ourselves, but we really kind of you know just want to we want to ple- be pleased. You know, we want to be pleased when when we leave the studio that day with the track that we had, you know cut. You just, you know, it's like you go home and listen to it and. Maybe the next day you come back in and change something. But no, I've been, I'm very pleased with how everything all kind of turned out. And I, I attribute a lot of that to, to, to making these records with Brendan, you know. And, uh, of course, you know, look, you're only as good as those who are around you, right? And, you know, Robert, Eric, and Scott, they make me look pretty good. Yeah, you're in pretty good company there. That's for sure. Yep. Don't sell yourself short, though. I mean, there's generations of guitar players out there that picked up the instrument in the first place because of your music. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, I've started asking this question to songwriters, and I'm going to ask it of you because the answers are always fascinating. It doesn't matter the artist mm-hmm. or the genre. So 
That doesn't matter to mm-hmm. me. This is a songwriter's question. Okay. Can you give me an okay. example of a song or two or three that you listen to that you wish you wrote and why? Oh, gosh, that happens weekly. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know it's a really hard question, but, but I love hearing songwriters break down what makes their favorite songs good. You know what I mean? It's not just because you like um, it because you're a fan, but like a, the craft of the songwriting that you go, okay, that's the perfect song. I wish I wrote that. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you this. I've been rather obsessive over a couple of artists over the last few weeks. Um, there's one song in particular I was I really really obsessed over, and it was "Whiz Kid" by Mata Hoople. Wow! Um, I've been really obsessing over that song, and as far as records go, that Thundercat record, "Drunk." Yeah, I've just been obsessing over that record. Just obsessed. I'm listening to it nonstop. There's this other band that I've been really, really digging that my son turned me on to. They're out of Toronto, I think. They're called Men I Trust. And um, gosh, I, I can't really, I don't know the names of the songs, but uh, they were just, they, they really have this vibe. I mean, they really have this vibe. And I was really, really obsessing over that band and a few of their songs uh, as well. So. Yeah, uh, there isn't a week that goes by where I hear a song, and I, you know, a lot of uh, friends of mine, I call them like, Man, I wish I wrote that. Honesty is the best policy, right? Like, oh man, I wish I wrote that. <laughs> it is really interesting the the way that that you listen to music as a musician and songwriter, as opposed to somebody like me, because you're going to hear little details and 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 idiosyncrasies in the music that for an untrained non-musical ear but a fan like me might not understand like oh my god that chord change or oh that that right there that little guitar lick or that way the melody changes like you're noticing little things like that well it's almost like a it's almost like it releases this dopamine you know there's there's songs like like for instance uh uh, these these songs are of this um, record by this band, Men I Trust. It, it's so vibey and so cool and so melancholic that it, it like, it really takes me somewhere. And, and, and it's almost like, it's like I just keep going back for more and more. You know, I keep, I'll, I'll like, I, I'm, when I tell you I obsess on it, I'm not joking. I'll, I'll listen to the song over and over for like days on end because it makes me feel this certain way. It pulls this, you know, feeling from me. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it can be this sadness, this like melancholic, like I said, and it just, yeah, it just really puts me in this place. And I, I kind of, um, you know, you know, when they put rats or mice in a thing and they, they, they have a bar on there to see what kind, what kind of rats, if they bite on the bar and it releases all this dopamine and some of them actually die with their mouths on the bar, they OD. It's like, <laughs> that's what I do with <laughs> I bite on, I bite onto the bar and just kind of go off and, it's like, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. There's just, it's yeah. I, I, I just, I'm so impacted by music, and it just really, it's, it's like a drug almost. It's weird to me that there are people that aren't like that. You know what I mean? Like, I date my whole life based on like the music I was listening to at the time, and like obsessing over albums and songs. And it, I don't understand people 
and how their brain works when they're not like that. And I think rock fans in a lot of ways, we're all kind of like that, that it's like in our bone marrow. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I think there's, there's a couple of different types of people that, that walk this earth. There's thinkers, the doctors and the lawyers of the world. And then there's the feelers that really go through life by their heart. And I think the feelers are just much more susceptible to letting music in and letting themselves go, you know. The danger with being obsessive with albums back in the day was that you'd scratch the hell out of your vinyl or that your cassette tape would just snap. Now, you're getting yeah, ready... to melt. Yeah, exactly. And you're getting ready to re-release Tiny Music. And I love that vinyl is back, right? That, it, that it's collectible, yeah. it's outselling CDs. I, I was always sad that it kind of went out of favor, although I, I understood its lack of portability. Um, but what I'm shocked by is that bands are making cassettes again that like do they not understand the horror of having your tape get eaten <laughs> do they not get oh, it it's terrible right it was like the worst thing ever i know it was terrible are you guys releasing cassettes with these reissues no no we're not okay cassettes, no gosh no but i'm glad you're doing the vinyl though yeah of course i mean vinyls Vinyl has made a really beautiful comeback over the last few years, you know? I know my son, who's 18, is really, he's into it. He's really into vinyl, and he's, he loves it. I, I talked to Rob Caggiano from Volbeat recently, and he's a producer as well, and I, I asked him to get a little nerdy for music fans about how you differently prepare songs and music for digital release or, like, on CD versus, like, the mixing and mastering process for vinyl because I didn't even know they were two different things. Did you guys have to go through that getting ready to re-release tiny music too? Yeah. You know, that, that aspect of it is kind of out of my hands. However, I just finished a record with a friend um, and we're kind of releasing it ourselves. So I, I am in that world. It's funny you're bringing that up because I am in that world as we speak. I just finished mastering this record and, and learning about, you know, what format goes out for streaming and what format goes out for printing, you know, cutting vinyl and what format goes out for this. So yeah, I, I'm really getting a, a lesson in that like just over the last few days. I didn't know that it was, that I up. didn't know that it was different, but I obviously know that like vinyl sound is just so much, it's far superior than any of the digital stuff. I mean, that's why we all grew up loving our albums and why we all still probably have all the ones that we had when we were younger. Yeah, it's definitely. And, you know, I don't really have a very nice stereo, but I have a friend who has a, a really nice stereo. When he, when he puts an LP on, my goodness, you know, it sounds unbelievable. Just how warm it is. And, you know, you can really tell how the, all the high end is, all the symbols, you know. You listen to that when you're on a, on a really nice, you've got a Macintosh amp with like, I don't know, some really fancy turntable. And my gosh, he puts a record on. It's like so warm and clean and it's just beautiful, you know? The other thing that I've, I've heard more than one artist say is that when they're in the studio and they're working on stuff, so you, you just finished a record. Tell me that you did this that you took it out to the car and sat in the car and listened to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're in these rooms 
designed with the physics of acoustics in, in mind. And the first thing we do is go out in our car and listen to it. The car test. Yep, that's the first thing. I never realized that bands did that. You guys are sitting in these studios with like millions of dollars of the best equipment, and you're like, let's go out and put it in the Oldsmobile. Yeah, that's where you need to test it, right? That's where you spend a lot of time. You know the stereo, and you just make sure everything's talking. I read an interview recently. Joe Elliott from Def Leppard was asked this question, and I, I loved his answer. He was asked about, like, um, performing at the Freddie Mercury. Love Joe, by the way. Yeah, I mean, just, I grew up such a huge fan. Like, he just seems, I've only interviewed him once, but he just couldn't have been nicer and more genuine and sweet. And he got asked about performing at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. And he said that that was, like, the best four minutes he's ever spent on stage with no slight to the guys in Def Leppard or anything, but just... Because of that, and and it made me want to kind of ask artists that question, like, regardless of who you were performing with, like, do you have a favorite stage moment or a favorite few moments on stage that you just go, okay, that that right there was at, at the best that it, it, it could ever be. That was my favorite. Well, I mean, there's too many for me to bring up just one and I, I will tell you you know I've had a lot of those nights um, with Scott with Chester and now I've experienced it with Jeff you know there's, there's just those nights where you know the room is just electric you know everybody that you're in front of is just throwing off this beautiful energy and everybody is just throwing that around and just you know I don't know what it is there's some nights that just like oh, I, I did not get it together tonight and then there's some nights where it's just like all aligned. And actually, the night that we were by you with Chester, that was one of those nights. That was one of those nights where we all came on stage like, wow, that, that was really, that was, that was off the planet, man. As a fan, and, uh, you can tell so the that, band's having a night like that, too. Like, you can, what is that? Is it the energy in the room? What is it? Because as a music fan, think, when the band is on, we can tell. Look, I think it. I think it starts there. That's why I brought that up. It starts there with that that energy everybody's throwing around in the room, you know. And it's it's just it's just that loving, loving kind of kind of energy. Just this real loving, respectful, beautiful energy, you know. And everybody kind of picks up on that, and it's just so reciprocal. And yeah, everybody kind of gets off on it, you know. I know you guys are getting ready to go out on the road, finally. <laughs> finally. Um, finally. What What is it going to mean to you to be able to get the band back out on tour after after everything that everybody's been through over the last year and a half? Well, you know, I, I hope we just uh, are able to provide an evening where everybody can just get out of their heads and kind of just have a really, really beautiful night. And uh, it's just back to that thing I just said, just throwing around that energy, that love, that respect, that, that just, that, that, that thing, you know? And, um, but that's, that's kind of what I like nowadays, you know? Well, I really appreciate the generosity of your time and, these reissues for for fans of these albums to be able to get all of this extra 
content and all of this extra stuff and and to celebrate these iconic albums that we love so much. I'm just such a huge fan and you guys have done such a good job in the past and I can't wait to get the Tiny Music reissue and I can't believe it's been 25 years. It blows my mind. I know. (laughs) No, I know. Believe me. (laughs) Well, hopefully I get to see you soon. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely will. Trust me. You're, you're going to have to, dra- I haven't been to a show since the end of February last year. You're going to have to drag me out of oh, these concerts, yeah. kicking and screaming at the end of the night. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Thanks, Carrie. It was a pleasure and I hope to see you soon. And I'm glad that you guys are all doing really well. So I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. Bye. There he is, Dean DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots. I don't know about you, but I could literally listen to him laugh for hours. And I wish that I had more time with him because I would have made him do more of his Tom Petty impersonation because it's freaking awesome. The Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop reissues come out on July 23rd. They're available for pre-order now. And the link to get more information is in the show notes of this podcast. There's also links there to find Stone Temple Pilots online and on social, and you can also find my links as well. So make sure you check out the official online Mistress Carrie store at mistresscarry.com. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and Jumptown Skydiving at jumptown.com. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything with the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. All of the rock news and music headlines in less than five minutes. And you can join me live on my Facebook page every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.